So I'm going to read our scripture lesson for today from the Gospel of Mark, but first, um, number one, it's in, your, it's in your bulletin so that you can follow along, but the, the, being able to see the scripture might help um, illuminate it for you in a new way, but also there's, um, there's something about getting your mind in the right place. So first, here's a story that helped me um, get my mind in the right spot for this scripture passage. Appa Sherpa is his name, the world record holder for the number of times climbing to the top of Mount Everest. And then in 2013, he beat his own record. Now he has traveled to the top of Mount Everest 21 times. Maybe it's been done before by someone in some unrecorded distant past, but 21 times Appa Sherpa has gone to the top of Mount Everest, and he is the only one, to our knowledge, who has done that, gone to the top of this peak in Sanskrit described as the peak of heaven. Mount Everest is, as you know, the highest mountain peak in the world, and life near the peak is impressive, a picture of Mother Nature's strength, where the air grows thin and the ice can shift and change and send ice boulders um, avalanching down. And just like any football team that's getting ready to play the mile-high Denver, Appa Sherpa does have some biological advantages having grown up in the high altitudes with low oxygen. He's lived his whole life close to the edge. It began like this at the age of three months. He and his mother were caught in an avalanche and he was thrown from the basket that was on his mother's back and he came to rest under an ice bridge, safe in a cleft of the mountain. So this story that you're about to hear of Jesus' transfiguration too happens on a high mountain set apart from the rest of the world. The highest mountain in Jesus' topography is Mount Hermon, whose highest peak is about 10,000 feet, and Mount Everest is three times that, almost 30,000. But there's snow on Mount Hermon in Israel, enough for skiing anyway. And nothing can really prepare your body for the thin mountain air other than actually going there. Even at 10,000 feet, the oxygen content is markedly different, and the sunshine and wind and extreme temperatures cause burns on your skin. It's about the same elevation as Aspen. Hiking Mount Hermon in Israel would require high-calorie foods, so many cliff bars, plenty of water, and your average American anyway would have to go through months of extreme training to make it to the top. A first-century Palestinian might be more accustomed to the daily rigors of travel. With no motor vehicles, most people walked from town to town without any trouble. But getting to this place of Jesus' transfiguration was likely no walk in the park. So here it is, high on this mountain, set apart, that Jesus is transfigured before his disciples' eyes. Listen now with holy attention. For God's presence in this reading from Scripture. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such that no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, 
who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Peter did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. Please pray with me. God of transfigurations, God of mountaintops, and of mystery, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be holy and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Here's a prayer that a kid once prayed. Dear God, please add another holiday between Christmas and Easter. There's just nothing good happening here. Amen. Yeah, there's Valentine's Day, and besides the candy, that's kind of a useless holiday for kids. And besides that, she's right, we need another holiday. There's Ash Wednesday, too, and it is definitely not a sparkly kid holiday. It probably passed her by without notice, though I have seen kids be deeply impacted by Ash Wednesday worship, so don't exclude them from that place. But what about Mardi Gras? Maybe God has answered her prayer. Mardi Gras is coming. Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, Pancake Tuesday, Shrove Tuesday, Pachki Day. Believe me, it has many names, but the message is the same. Eat, drink, be merry, and do it while you can, for tomorrow everything changes. Today we party. Tomorrow we can tune our hearts to a different song. In New Orleans, Mardi Gras is already underway. If you've ever been there during Mardi Gras, you know the party started weeks ago. And as of last night, there were already 50,000 posts tagged hashtag Mardi Gras 2018. And I can only imagine the truckloads of flour and sugar and butter that are coming to Chicago. The Polish bakers must have their pantries full in anticipation of the hundreds of thousands of potchkis that will be sold in Chicago on Tuesday, filling up office break rooms across the country. You know the line that will form. You know where you can find your potchkis in the office. The juxtaposition of Mardi Gras alongside Ash Wednesday is purposefully unsettling. It's meant to agitate and alarm, to open up your senses to the spiritual possibilities of these two things standing by, side by side of excess on the one hand and absence on the other. Eat all the sweets you want today so that tomorrow you can give them up and live in longing for 40 days. Today's text puts a finer point on it. The transfiguration stresses illuminescence, brightness, sparkly, glittery, radiant light, while Ash Wednesday dwells in the dust, the ash, the smudged forehead, and the preciousness of this fleshy existence. The thin air of the transfiguration seems all the more far away against the thick, rich, earthy, 
commonness of Ash Wednesday. Today we attend to the possibilities of sacred light beyond sacred light, this mystery on the mountaintop. And by Wednesday, we will be tuning our hearts to the possibilities of being mortal, something as near as your beating heartbeat. In some traditions, this last Sunday before Lent is a Sunday of holy laughter, a Sunday set apart for silliness, because the season of Lent brings something not quite somber, but certainly sober and restrained. Some churches even retire the word Alleluia, which was the last, the last word of this hymn that we just heard. Some churches retire the word Alleluia during the season of Lent. One year, we took the word Alleluia and wrote it really big on a huge piece of paper. And with the kids, we folded it up and we put it in a box. And on Easter morning, we opened that box. We didn't use the word Alleluia for the whole season of Lent. So that by Easter Sunday, our Alleluias would be that much more precious, more beloved, more tender. We're supposed to feel the turning of this season, the new spirit of Lent falling upon us this Wednesday. And so we mark this occasion, today and Tuesday, with laughter and sweet treats. But to be honest, there's also something earthy about today's story, as if this story of transfiguration is calling out towards Ash Wednesday, saying, bring me along too. The mountain climbing with Jesus is divine and dusty, despite its one-note legacy of brilliant light. Admittedly, if you watch the Super Bowl, it reads like a Tide commercial. His clothes become dazzlingly bright such that no launderer on earth could bleach them. Tide would take credit for Jesus' clean clothes if they could. But the disciples have muddy boots and dusty clothes from the long hike. They don't sparkle. In fact, as soon as Peter opens his mouth, some foolishness about wanting to stay up there and build little buildings for Jesus and his friends, a cloud overshadows them. This word overshadowed is only used one other time in the gospel when the angel Gabriel meets Mary to tell her that she's with child. The Holy Spirit is present there on that mountaintop in an incarnational way, in a dusty way, in a way that's powerful enough to bring something from nothing to make holy the lowly, to foster life in unexpected places. Now, Peter thinks that he's already seen the thing that he's been ushered up to the mountaintop to see. He thinks that Moses and Elijah are the end of the show. And out of fear and trembling, he opens his mouth to suggest, let's stay here, I'll build you a beautiful dwelling place, Jesus. A ho your holy presence is so important, it should be preserved or honored. Or as some interpreters have noticed maybe he's trying to box in Jesus to box in the holy to put it into a more palatable package Peter doesn't know what he's saying he's afraid they all are they're afraid then but then this cloud overshadows them and God's presence is brought down to earth or maybe earth is elevated into heaven and 
as has happened other times in Scripture, a voice spoke from the cloud. Moses would not be uh, surprised by this, this voice from a cloud. And as has happened other times in Jesus' journey, like on his baptism, this voice says, this is my son, my beloved. And this time the voice adds, listen to him. Have you ever, can you picture this scene? Have you ever seen one of those photos taken from a mountaintop where the clouds are actually below you and not above? Or have you ever been to such a mountaintop and taken such a photo? A cloud like that just enveloped them and a voice came to them in that darkness. And then suddenly, like that, it was over. The moment was past, there was no going back. The disciples looked around, it was just Jesus. And Jesus tells them, keep it to yourself. No one will believe you, or maybe no one will understand you at least, and no one will benefit from a secondhand hearing of this account. It's the kind of thing that you hold on to for yourselves. Keep it to yourselves at least for a while, until later. Later you can tell people about this holy encounter, but for now, hold on to it and ponder it and let it work on you. Let this experience settle into you. And from then on, Peter and James and John, they're the only three who know what really happened that day. They're the only ones who really know what it's like. They're the only ones whose eyes saw the mystery of Jesus' clothes, who could see Jesus and Moses and Elijah talking to one another, who could feel that fear of not knowing, who could remember the shadow passing over the mountain, that cloud that enveloped them that could remember that suddenness with which it was all over. All right, that's enough of the scripture passage. Here's how I connect to this story on a personal level. Peter and James and John, in that moment, become a community of commonality. What I mean by that is that they understand each other. They know what it's like. They get it. I need my communities of commonality. Jerry Seinfeld, on his Netflix show, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee, says that when he's in a room full of Hollywood people, he can't help but gravitate towards the other comedians. He looks around the big crowd, and he goes straight for the other comedians. He needs them. He doesn't know how to handle himself without them. They are his community of commonality. Clergy are my community of commonality. Or, this year I was welcomed into motherhood, this unexpectedly accessible, beautiful community of commonality. This summer, if you watched the total eclipse, seeing the sun disappear in the middle of the day, you and I are part of a community of commonality. If you've ever put on a beekeeping suit and stood among the buzzing bees as they go in and out of their hive, you and I are part of a community of commonality. Kate Bowler, a theologian, was entered unexpectedly into a community of commonality this year. She was diagnosed with terminal cancer. She has spent her career studying what's called the prosperity gospel, this quintessentially American belief that God rewards the right kind of faith, that if you're suffering, you must have done something wrong. She wrote a book in response kind of living in the tension between the American prosperity gospel and her terminal cancer diagnosis called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. 
I'm not sure it's the kind of book that I'll ever, ever be able to read cover to cover. I just read an, expert, an excerpt this week, and it's devastating, beautifully written, evocative, the kind of book that draws you in that you want to finish cover to cover, but you can only do so with tears in your eyes. What she said when she first found out that she had terminal cancer was this. God, that's ironic. She wrote the book because she noticed that that second that she got sick, that she found out that she had this terminal diagnosis, she was flooded with the same kinds of questions and hopes that she'd been watching prosperity believers have for the last 10 years. She thought, wow, what a basic human quality to want a guarantee, to want God to reach down and make a little exception just for you. Maybe, she said, I've had my own prosperity gospel all along. She entered into this community of commonality that she never expected to join. In an interview, she talked a little bit about what her diagnosis had taught her, and here's my favorite piece. She said that the basic thing is not that pain has to be explained. I wish, she said, that people would just like take a breath, notice the person in front of them, and realize that it's probably been a hard day, and maybe they just want to talk about The Bachelor. It's been a good season. Maybe you are part of a community of commonality. Maybe you're part of this community, a terminal diagnosis, or long days that you just don't have the energy to talk about, or hard days that only end because they have a good TV show at the end. Or maybe you're part of a community of commonality that knows divorce or chronic illness or chronic pain or the hardship of watching one of your children suffer or the wild ride of homelessness or the death of a parent. Maybe you haven't found your community of commonality yet. Maybe you are still searching, waiting, watching to find that spark, that knowing look, that piece of understanding where someone understands what you are going through and what it's like to see the world through those new eyes. Somebody who knows the hurt of small things that no one else notices or understands something that you understand so deeply and yet so many don't get it. So that's what I learned from the story of the transfiguration today that Peter and James and John up there on that mountaintop become this small, intimate community of commonality. That they see there on that mountaintop the vastness of God's love, even in the midst of the mystery of this cloud and in the mystery of Jesus' brightness. And together they see that Jesus is beloved and with them, they take that down the mountainside. And even though they don't tell that story, they bring that love of God with them. Without words, they are able to spread that love to those who are also seeking their own connections to God and to one another, to those who are seeking a community of commonality. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.